Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Look, I know your time is precious, so that's why I don't take it lightly when we put out a mammoth three-hour program like we did last month. But look, it was a special once-in-a-generation kind of program, all right? Once-in-a-decade kind of program. It was our best-of-the-decade show, and I hope you guys really enjoyed it. It took a lot of time to put together, uh, but it was, as always with this program, a labor of love from both Andy and myself. So thank you very much for listening all the way through it. Uh, If you did listen all the way through it, I hope you were rewarded with some uh, movies, some TV shows, and some albums that maybe you hadn't gotten around to yet but uh, should bump toward the top of your list. If you missed that episode last month, I recommend you uh, go check it out because in it, um, Andy and I recapped our 10 favorite movies, TV shows, and albums of the past decade and it took us a long time to do it because we talked a lot about each of them. We didn't just want to run through them in five seconds because then what kind of an impact would they have left if that's all we had to say about them? So welcome into uh, this um, normal edition of the show, I should say. And I have some exciting news because this is the first time since 2006 that I am recording on a different microphone. I have been using the same microphone since I did my first podcast, the IDCast, back in 2006. The old, old days of podcasting when you really had to have an iPod to download. You had to download them on the iTunes store, and you had to have an iPod to be able to listen to them, Um, thus the name podcasting. Now it's kind of a meaningless name. But uh, I've been using the same Samson digital microphone since 2006 that I bought when I was 18 years old uh, for the express purpose of doing that show. I did it from my dorm room at Bowling Green State University, and then later when I transferred to Wright State University, I kept doing the show from my dorm room and from my apartment there in Dayton, Ohio. So uh, I have now moved on finally to a new microphone, so I can thank my mother-in-law for that. I would have just kept using the Samson had she not gotten me this one for Christmas. So I don't know, maybe you can hear me lighten up my stogie even a little bit clearer. Let me go ahead and do that. Let's get that uh, get that going. As I, as I always like to tell you, I'm sitting in my closet in Columbus, Ohio. By the way, I'm Clint Davis. I talk movies and television here on the Stream Police podcast every single month. Um, and uh, in a little bit, we'll be hearing from 
my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak, who talks music here on the show every month. But let me go ahead and I'm sitting in my closet. I like the lightest stogie, get the atmosphere right. Let me go ahead and do that. All right, now that that's taken care of, let's move on. Do not forget to follow me on Instagram. I am at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis. I'm also on Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis. But if you want to see what I'm watching as I watch it, you can follow me on Instagram. Check out my stories there. Almost, uh, you know, every night, every few nights, I am posting whatever movie it is that I'm watching that evening. And if you have any comments, feel free to send me a message about them. Um, And keep an eye on the Overdue Review YouTube channel. That is still out there. Overdue Review. Search it on YouTube. You'll see my face there. Um, I've had, you know, some of the video reviews I've done have gotten a lot of hits, but I I don't get to do them a lot because those are time-consuming to make. But my kind of New Year's resolution is to do more YouTube videos this year. Um, and I am doing one that should be done in the next few days. I'm doing a video review of Cowboy Bebop the movie, so you can check that out on the Overdue Review YouTube channel. Please subscribe. It doesn't cost you anything. Just uh, go over there and hit the subscribe button on Overdue Review if you haven't already. And uh, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you probably saw my recap of all the time I spent watching movies in 2019. I kept track of everything I watched this year for the first time in my life. Um, I kept religious track of everything I watched uh, by using IMDb. All I did was I went into IMDb. I made a list called Watched in 2019, and I simply added every single movie I watched to that list without fail so that I would know at the end of the year everything that I watched. And IMDb makes it real easy because they show you the the runtime of everything. So I had to do some math and add up what the runtimes were and all this. So that was some more time. But in the end, I watched 183 individual movies. Some of them I watched multiple times, so those don't even count in that viewing total. But 183 individual films in the year 2019, which equaled out to 14 and a half days of time spent looking at a screen watching films only. That doesn't even count the time I spent watching TV shows or uh, playing video games. I mean, I don't even know. It's probably at least a month, I would say, of screen time if I counted all of that up. So do I regret any of it? Absolutely not. And that's why I get in here every month in this closet, smoke a stogie, and talk to you about everything I'm checking out. 14 and a half, two weeks of movies last year that I watched. So I'm going to hope to, it was an average of like three and a half movies a week. So I got to keep my pace up this year if I'm going to do that. In the first couple weeks of 2020, I'm down on my pace. I have not watched at three movies a week yet. I've I've only watched like two movies a week so far this year. So I gotta I gotta bump it up if I'm gonna keep my pace. Um, but I anyway I watched six movies last year by Michael Haneke and four by Ingmar Bergman. So those were the directors that I spent the most time with in 2019, and I do not uh, regret a second spent with those guys. I mean, both of them can't became. Two of my all-time favorites, especially Haneke, I just love his stuff. And movies like The Piano Teacher and Caché, uh, which I talked about on this show a couple months ago. The White Ribbon, um, I had already, Funny Games was already one that I had already liked. Uh, I watched Time of the Wolf last year. I, so I watched a bunch of Michael Haneke movies, and I was just, a more also, and I just loved them. Uh, for the most part, all the way through. I mean, I had The White Ribbon, The Piano Teacher, 
and Cache. All three of those were five star perfect movies to me uh, when I was grading them. So that's, I mean, the three movies by one guy that I watched in a year were five star films. So I just really fell in love with the movies of Michael Haneke last year. So I definitely recommend you checking him out if you uh, if you get a chance. It was a great year of discovering new movies, though, uh, and I'm somebody who had already watched tons of I watched tons of movies ever since I was you know old enough to my parents would let me go and rent movies. I've always watched tons of movies every year, so uh, it, it. But I just still discovered tons of new ones I hadn't seen last year, and I'm going to do the same this year. There's just too many of great ones out there that we have not seen yet. So uh, keep track of everything you watch, though. I recommend it. It's cool if you just go into IMDb and you start a list there. Um, watched in 2020 or whatever, you can keep track of exactly what you watch every single year and know when you watched it. I mean, you can also just do it with a little notepad app or whatever and just jot the titles down and make sure you don't skip any of them. But uh, it, IMDb does make it really easy. And also you give them your grades there so you can remember what you exactly thought about that movie, which sometimes is tough for me. It's hard for me to, you know, back when I had overdue review, I used to check it sometimes to see. I was like, "What did I can't remember what I thought about this movie." And this was a film that I had watched multiple times. I had written a thousand-word review about for the website because we wrote long-form reviews there. Uh, and yet, you know, two years passed by, and I couldn't remember exactly what I thought about it. So it was always helpful to go back there and, and check again. The same thing, IMDb is good for that too. You can remember what exactly you thought about it because sometimes your memory is a little kinder to a movie than. It, you know, it should be. It was, it's kinder than it was, uh, than your thoughts were at the time when you saw it. Okay, so let's get on with the show. The greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. I did not do one last month. So that was the first time since I started doing that segment uh, 46 episodes ago, 47 episodes ago. I guess it'd be 48 now since I skipped one. Um, and this next one will be the 47th entry into the canon of the greatest TV show theme songs ever. But anyway, catching back up on that great segment, I mentioned the show Halt and Catch Fire in my top 10 shows of the 2010s. I ended up picking it as my fifth favorite show of the decade if you didn't listen to last month's episode. But I have not reviewed the show in full on the podcast because I only finished watching it in like November early November or something like that. So I hadn't had the time to review it fully here on the program, even though it's been done for a few years now. It ended in 2017, but still, I like to review things as I'm finished with them in full. Um, and that show just happens also to have one of the most kick-ass theme songs in history. So I'm just going to play you the full theme song, and then I'm going to talk about the show. So I'm going to break format a little bit here. So anyway, AMC's Halt and Catch Fire is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And before I play the theme song, let me just set the scene for you a little bit so you know what to expect before you're going into it. So you're sitting down to watch a show that's set in the mid-1980s at the start of the personal computer age. And it's a series about a bunch of restless genius outcasts who are just dying to create something great in tech, but desperately need a push in the right direction. They just aren't focused and they're not organized enough. And from that description and that setting, you get hammered with this thumping, driving, synth-heavy theme song. That's our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week.
Man, isn't that a great theme song? I mean, again, this is a show set in the 1980s. It's about computers. And don't you get that vibe from it? I've told you before, my friend, that I think the TV show theme song has become an afterthought in the past 20 years. Uh, It's just not as important anymore, especially, I think, uh, when DVDs came out and shows started hitting DVD and people were binge watching them, they would just skip the chapter real easily. Skip it. Don't want to watch the theme song. Um, And popular shows were abandoning theme songs like Lost. Lost never had a theme song. They just didn't even do one. It had like a little two-second musical flourish, and that was one of the most popular and influential shows of its generation. So... Uh, I think a lot of people watch that and they're kind of like, yeah, I mean, we don't really need a theme song. It's kind of passe. You know what I mean? And then Netflix now makes it to where they they bring it up on the screen, skip intro. And most people, I think, just do that. And if you were binge watching and if you're automatically watching the shows, if you're just letting the next episode play and it's a show that opens with the theme song, not with a cold open, it will just automatically skip the theme song for you and jump right into the action. So a lot of people I think are going away from the TV theme song, but there are some shows out there that have come out in recent years that are keeping it as a vital part of the viewing experience. And that's exactly what the people behind halt and catch fire did when they made their TV show. That theme was composed by a Danish electronic musician named Anders Trent Mueller. And I think that he just nailed the whole attitude and the whole style of the series because Halt and Catch Fire is is a show that is loaded with attitude and style. It's got both of those things in spades. One of the, those that's two things about the show that I really liked a lot. It just was so sure of itself. I always felt from start to finish. And if you watch the opening visuals that go along with it, and I recommend you do go on YouTube and just look at the Halt and Catch Fire opening. It's this perfect marriage even though the music apparently came after the animation was created, like they were doing the animation and then they got the theme song. So it, it, they just happened to work really well together, but the animation is great on its own. It's just a hell of an opener. And I never dared skip that opener once during the show's 40 episode run, but halt and catch fire. Uh, this, this show really took me by surprise. It was one that I was a late adopter on. I remember seeing, uh, previews for it and promos for it when Mad Men was kind of ending its run. So Halt and Catch Fire aired on AMC uh, originally, and it aired from 2014 to 2017. So it debuts in 2014, just kind of as as Mad Men is winding down its epic run on AMC. And Halt and Catch Fire is like that next big AMC show that's coming up. And it has a lot in common kind of with Mad Men because it's so much about business and it's a period show and it's a big time character study. So, and those are things that were hallmarks of Mad Men. I mean, the period obviously was the 1960s. The business in that case was advertising, uh, but it was a character study and it was a lot about gender dynamics uh, and feminism and women finding their place in a world that was dominated by men. And that's exactly what Halt and Catch Fire is about in a lot of ways as well, because the women characters in this show are really good. They're really complex um, and they are just so well played and well done. There are two women at the top of this show, Carrie Bechet and Mackenzie Davis, who became actors that I really, really like a lot uh, just from their performances in this show. Both of them really just sunk their teeth into their parts uh, and nailed them. But this show, if you never saw it, it's uh, like I said, it's about 
the industry or the tech sector and the people that kind of built it from the ground up. And these aren't real people that you can see parts of real people in the characters, but these aren't like, this isn't a show about Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and all those guys. It's not about the real guys. It's, it's set, but it does happen in the real world. So you will hear references to companies like Apple and references to companies uh, like Yahoo as the show continues to go on like AOL uh, gets mentioned as well as the show kind of pivots into the internet age. But this show is truly epic because it covers a lot of time in a very short span. It was only on for four seasons, 10 episodes each season. So it's a quick watch, hour long episodes, but uh, yeah, 40 total episodes. And it covered more, it was, a, I think it was about a decade actually, about 10 years of time in those four seasons. So we cover a lot of ground and a lot of innovations in this time. But the series essentially follows five people who are all geniuses in different aspects of the tech industry. Some of them are brilliant coders. Some of them are brilliant engineers and builders of computers. Some of them are brilliant only at marketing and coming up with ideas. Some of them um, are brilliant at making business deals and uh, at making connections and, and being charming. And that's definitely a necessary part of business as well. And some of them are kind of uh, have the best of all those parts and try to go off on their own and do their own thing. But each of them kind of have their own unique strengths and weaknesses, which makes them great as a team. But the problem is that these characters' egos and their emotions are just so big that they keep getting in the way as the show goes on. So they rarely ever actually get to work together as a team. It's really only at the beginning of the show and then toward the end of the show that you get to see these people actually work as a team together. But you're rooting for them to pull together and work on something together the entire run of the series. The dynamics in the series change a lot as the seasons go on between the characters. I mean, characters that you never thought would become friends end up becoming tight allies as the show goes on and characters who, you know, you thought were going to be great working together just butt heads when it comes time to get something done. So, it's just a I, I loved this show because it gave you such a fascinating look at what goes into running a company, starting a company, uh, creating new things. It's such a restless and I think ultimately empty search, really. If you're looking for something more than monetary gain, it's, it's hard to find it there. At least that's the moral of Halt and Catch Fire because these characters do not find a lot of fulfillment personally in what they do uh, at work. But in a lot of cases, it's all they have. Uh, and they put their families on the back burner and stuff because they are obsessed with being at the forefront of the evolution of personal computers or of uh, of new software. So it's cool. If it sounds like a big nerd show, it's not at all. I'm not like I don't know coding. I don't. Uh, I've never built a computer. I'm not like into that kind of stuff. But. I thought this show was fascinating because really all it is is about it's just about characters. The characters get into interesting situations. They get into high stakes situations and their relationships with each other change and evolve so much as time goes on. They're just so dynamic. Um, the characters are in this series and the acting is done at such a high level from top to bottom. And really, it's that five person cast uh, that keeps things really chugging along as it goes. And uh, the, the show never never dragged I didn't think it ever I, I didn't feel like it ever dragged at any point and it never got dull either because there just wasn't any time for that again you're going over the course of 10 years 
of time and innovations um, in computers and in tech in the course of just four seasons. So it's a lot of stuff to cover. And those those five people, I mentioned uh, Carrie Bechet and I mentioned Mackenzie Davis. They're both very good in this in this uh, in this show, and they are the two women I was talking about that you know are kind of the main characters of the entire series. But Lee Pace, who you might remember from Pushing Daisies, uh, he is also in this, and he, he I guess he's kind of like the lead character, really. He's the kind of Steve Jobs kind of guy, who's uh, the master marketer and. Um, is dangerous enough as far as, you know, he knows a whole lot about tech, but he's not, he didn't come up as a coder or as a, a computer builder. So the, the hardware guys don't really take him that seriously. They think he's just a big flashy show off. Um, and he kind of is in some ways, especially in the first season, he's just kind of that sports car driving neon shirt wearing, um, you know, collar up 1980s yuppie guy. And, you know, coming from IBM down to Texas to work at this small personal computer firm, and he thinks he's going to light the world on fire and, uh, you know, ends up being humbled pretty quickly. So it, the Lee Pace, though, just goes to great emotional depths in this show. And his his character, Joe McMillan, is kind of the beating heart of the entire series. Uh, Scoot McNary, also very good in this show. I've seen him in other things since this um, and he's, but he's really good in this series. He gets a lot to do as kind of, um, the top nerd, if you will, on the show. He's the, he's the guy who is the genius computer builder and great, uh, hardware mind of the group. While Mackenzie Davis's character is the great coding genius of the group there and the great software builder. And then Toby Huss, uh, the oldest member of the cast plays, the guy I was talking about who is great at making deals, at making business connections, he's just he's just a charmer. That's that's his best attribute. And you've got kind of this older guy who doesn't know anything about computers, whose fondest memory of technology is a uh, handheld transistor radio, you know, that uh, he once had. So and he's working with all these kind of young people who are obsessed with computers and are obsessed with building them and and taking them apart and everything else. And it's a, it's really a great dynamic when it happens. And he ends up acting as kind of a surrogate father for the entire group. And Toby Huss, by the way, played Artie, the strongest man in the world from the adventures of Pete and Pete on Nickelodeon. So that was an amazing thing that I did. I did not discover until I was researching him for this segment. When I'm watching the show, I didn't even know that's Artie. I mean, he looks completely different. It's insane. So you go and watch clips. That's uh, and he also did the voice of uh, cotton, uh, Hank Hill's dad on King of the Hill as well. So he's just got kind of this great voice. I think he's actually from Iowa. He's not from Texas, but he plays a Texan in this show. He played a Texan on King of the Hill. He's just got this great way of talking that kind of, he just sounds like a big, larger-than-life Texan kind of guy. So he's perfect for the part. So the casting is just fantastic. This show was really under appreciated. I don't think it was underrated because I think it did get critical acclaim, but it was underappreciated. It was overlooked when it was on, including by myself. Um, and I didn't get around to it until it was on Netflix, which it's now on Netflix if you want to watch it. And I totally recommend you do because it's a fast watch. And, man, it's just fun. It's cool, stylish. And you really learn and respect kind of what goes into innovating things because it just looks like such a lonely and miserable way to make your living, I think. And these guys just... And these women, they just, 
never really find what they're looking for, even as the show continues to go on and on. So, uh, yeah, it's it was it was a great four season run, very tight. They could have done more. I think it's one of those shows that uh, you kind of. I was sad to see it end. I did not want to watch the last episode because I did not want to be done with it. But uh, I think Halt and Catch Fire is going to go down as one of those great TV shows of the 2000s. Um, and certainly in the 2010s, it's got to be right up there with the absolute best. I had it as my fifth favorite show of the decade. Um, and I think you can make an argument that it could even go higher than that. It's just a really good, solid show that it seemed like they had a direction in mind from start to finish. And it's also one of those rare shows that got better with every single passing season. I will say that. I thought the first season was good. But man, the last season was really good, and the penultimate season was very good as well. So it just got better and better as it went on, kind of culminating in what was its best season. And its finale was really, really good, too. A very good final episode. I thought the pilot was really good, too. So again, it's another one of those shows that had great bookend episodes. I talked about that a couple episodes ago as well. When you get a good series that's got good bookend episodes, those tend to live on, I think, longer than some of the other series that... uh, kind of sag a little bit at the end or kind of get off on a weaker foot but uh, halt and catch fire was strong from start to finish great show it's uh, now streaming on netflix uh definitely check it out and check out that theme song if you're not going to watch the show at least go on youtube and look up halt and catch fire theme song because it's really cool when you see the visuals over top of it as well but that's uh, it was a great show well, the truth is our systems are outperforming every top seller in the market what about IBM? IBM is IBM, but we're neck and neck, and we're cheap. Technically. Now, the difference in cost is negligible. It just seems you guys at Cardiff think you've built yourself a fancy race car that deserves an outrageous price tag. And we get no big blue guarantee. I don't think there is such a thing. Well, they had me fooled. <laughs> me too. I worked there. I grew up there. And I was brought up to believe that the work we did, the things we built, were the singular contribution to computers that history would remember. And I believed it for a long time. For a long time, it was true. Nobody ever got fired for buying an IBM, right? What a fearful way to do business. You've made just enough safe choices to stay alive, but not enough to matter. Is that what you want? You can be more. You want to be more, don't you? The window of opportunity is closing. This is your chance. This is not about not losing. This is about you finally having the confidence to walk out on the ledge and know that you're not going to fall. Are we still talking about system software here? Amen. Let's get this guy another drink. I'm not going to apologize for caring about your business, even if the people who work for you don't. I'll ask you one more time. Are you ready to be more? Lee Pace is just awesome, man. I mean, I think that guy can do absolutely anything i the fact that he's not a bigger star than he is he should be like one of the biggest movie stars because he's first off he's absolutely one of the most handsome men like classically handsome men that you could ever put in front of a, a camera and he's just a great actor he's so good when i watched him in pushing daisies i was blown away 
It's like, why is this guy not a bigger star? He's fantastic. And then in Halt and Catch Fire, he's even better. He reaches even lower depths and kind of higher highs as well. And, he, and you just you feel this kind of humanity come out of him that's uh, not always common in actors. He's, uh, he's something special, man. I can't wait to see what Lee Pace kind of does next. I'll be there, though, whatever it is. All right, before I send it over to Andy, I wanted to talk uh, for a minute about HBO's new show, His Dark Materials, which is airing right now on Monday nights. It's just kind of now wrapping up its first season on the air. And His Dark Materials is based on a series of a trilogy of books called the His Dark Materials series. It's the Golden Compass and the Subtle Knife and the Amber Spyglass. And that series of books, I just discovered them in the last year, and I loved these books. They are, they're so good. They're so cool for like a young adult to read, but also for an adult to read. And it's just a different kind of spin on fantasy uh, that's really grounded in a true love for science and scientific discovery and figuring out the wonders of the world. Um, and it's just a, a cool world, great characters that really come off the page, and, and those books are fast reads. So I was really interested when I heard HBO was going to be doing a TV series version of His Dark Materials, and I wanted to give you some initial thoughts. I'm not done with the first season yet, but I have watched the first four episodes of it, and uh, it, Daphne Keen is the star of the show. She plays Lyra, who's the main girl in this series. And uh, she was the girl from Logan, actually, Daphne Keen. If you if you didn't see Logan, you're missing out. That was a great uh, one of the great comic book movies of the last uh, 10 years easily. And uh, certainly one of the best X-Men movies. It could it might be the best X-Men movie ever made, honestly. Um, but anyway, Logan, uh, she was the girl in that. She was the like kind of quiet assassin girl that Wolverine had to watch in that movie. So she's grown up a little bit here, but she's playing Lyra, who is a girl, uh, like a teenage girl. And she's this girl who's been raised inside a college, inside like the most prestigious college in England. And she's been raised hanging out. She doesn't have parents. And so she kind of is raised by the professors there, but also by like the, the caretakers and the staff members. And she spends a lot of her time hanging out with like the cleaning staff's kids. So she's not one of these like kind of elite rich kids, even though she could be. Uh, she doesn't even really know anything about her background, but she's just this kid who is fascinated with learning, with, wants to know everything that she possibly can about the world. And she finds herself kind of getting pulled into the middle of this big struggle between the basically the church of the world that she lives in and people who oppose the church and also people who have discovered things about the world that the church has been covering up and lying about, namely the fact that there are other worlds that can be reached via portals uh, from the world that she lives in. So it's just this whole crazy thing that opens up into uh, a giant war and conspiracy between humans and also between animals. And a big thing in the world of his dark materials is that every person in Lyra's world has an animal uh, who is called a demon that is by their side at all times from birth to death. So that people cannot live without their demon and uh, they cannot even be separated physically from their demon. They have to be within like a few feet of their demon or they feel physical pain. Um, and so it's like their confidant. It's like the, the person that they're always talking to. So instead of kind of having inner thoughts, they're always talking to their demon because it's it's like 
a personification of their own soul, basically, on the outside. And, the, and it's an animal that can change forms into any form that it wants to uh, until they reach a certain age, and then it, it picks a, a form and stays in it. So I know that sounds crazy, but it's really cool. And so in the TV series, they've got Lyra, they've got her demon, Pantalaimon is with her all the time, and the animation looks really good. I was worried about that, but it looks really good. The demons look cool when they talk. It makes sense, uh, and, it, and it, it's all good. James McAvoy is in it as well. He plays uh, Lord Asriel, who is Lyra's uncle, and uh, this kind of mysterious and and gruff explorer kind of figure who is one of the ones that's going against the church in uh, the England of Lyra's time. And then uh, Ruth Wilson from The Affair, she's in it as well. She plays Mrs. Coulter, who is another explorer, but who ends up taking on a greater role as the show, as I should say, the book series goes on. And then you've got Clark Peters, who played Lester Freeman in The Wire. He is the master of Jordan College, where Lyra lives. So you've got some really big-time actors. Lin-Manuel Miranda is also in the show. He plays... Uh, one of my favorite characters from the books. But I got to say, I don't know if he was cast very well. Lin-Manuel Miranda, for as talented as he is, this is not the part that I think necessarily was really written for him. It's the the part, he plays this cigar-chomping explorer guy who flies around the world in a hot air balloon and who is constantly getting into scrapes he's basically basically like indiana jones he's a he's from texas he's like the only character in the whole series that's american and he's basically the embodiment of what a lot of foreign people think of when they think of like old time west america uh of the kind of rugged outdoorsman the you know individualistic adventurer kind of type of guy that's exactly what he is what his character is and uh, he's absolutely one of my favorite characters in the books and in the movie version he was played by Sam Elliott and that is who I would picture playing this part and Lin-Manuel Miranda and Sam Elliott do not have a lot of things in common with each other so I probably would not have gone with Lin-Manuel Miranda and I didn't totally buy him in the role so that's my that that's my biggest issue with the casting of the show. But my initial thoughts on his dark materials are that it's a little slow taking off. I mean, and I know the world I've read it. So I know that this thing is going to get really intense and exciting. But I, I think if you hadn't read the books and Beth was watching it with me and she didn't read the books and she really lost interest pretty quickly. Uh, and I hate that because I think this series, this, this series of books is so good and it's, kind of vital I think I think it's one of those that's going to be timeless and should live on for a long time but you know you need to have a good tv series or movie version for a lot of people to to give a shit about a book series and I don't know I hope that the tv series really picks up some steam but yeah it was the first couple episodes a little slow taking off there's a lot of exposition to kind of get out of the way and and a lot of world building to do and they did it Um, And I'm still interested in it because I know where this series is going to go and I know it's going to get even better. Uh, I love the look of the show also. It looks really good. It looks like a big budget HBO show. And I also did like the theme song. It's got a really nice long theme song as well. HBO is still taking that stuff very seriously. But the action, just a little slow taken off. And I don't know about Lin-Manuel Miranda. So those are my big problems with his dark materials. But I'll give you more thoughts on it as it goes on and as I finish the first season. But it is airing on Mondays right now on HBO, and you can stream the first season on HBO now. Have you watched his dark materials? Let me know 
what you think about it. I love the books, but I just, I don't know. I don't know about the series yet. Now, what will you eat? I don't care about food. Well, you might care about food if you were starving. Is that an armored bear skull? I've heard so much about them. Lyra. Lyra. Sit down. Sweetbreads. Huh? Courtesy of the chef, Mrs. Coulter. Thank you. Mrs. Coulter, I've been thinking about Roger, and I think I should help you with the search. Like you said in Jordan, child's eyes. Useful. Lyra, look around this room. How many women do you see? In every room, there are those that would belittle you. With my help, they won't lay a scratch on you. For you will have knowledge that they won't. That I can teach you to wield power over all of them. But you must let me mold you. You must trust me. I trust you. Then will you let me find Roger for you? He's my best friend. Lyra, I won't let you down. All right. Good. Now, who do you want to be introduced to first? All right, I'm going to toss it over to Andy. He's going to talk this time about an artist that's very near and dear to my heart. The first guy I ever saw in concert, the great Garth Brooks. Let's see what he's got to say about that. Take it away, my friend. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there. <laughs> Great to be with you. My name is Andy Sedlak. I talk about um, music here on the Stream Police podcast. Please do us a favor and um, rate the show five stars. You can do it wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, if you could just leave a stellar review. Now, I realize I may be pushing it, uh, but if you could leave us a review, that would be great. Maybe mention us to a friend. Like, if you've got a pal, like a pal who is a podcast freak, drop our name because nothing goes further than a personal recommendation. All right. Had to get that out of the way. I hope you all had a wonderful New Year's. And let me welcome you to the Roaring Friggin' Twenties. (laughs) 
take a look around. One big party, right? <laughs> well, look, to, to be fair, uh, it took uh, the 20s a little time to start roaring the first time around. So I suspect the same will be true this time. Um, but since we have entered a new year, it means that this song is officially 10 years old. Yeah, can you believe it? This song also 10 years old. And here's another one that celebrates its 10th birthday this year. All those songs were um, released in 2010, a full decade ago now. Uh, not only that, but this song is 20 years old. Yeah, this one right here goes out to all the babies, mamas, 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 mamas. <laughs> Baby mama's mama's. Yeah, go like this. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. Never meant to make your daughter cry. I apologize a trillion times. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. Never meant to make your daughter cry. And this also 20. We'll keep going. Here's one that's 30 years old. Hold On by Wilson Phillips was released in 1990, 30 years ago. Seems wild to say that uh, out loud, but that's how time works. Uh, here's another cut from 1990. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. My, 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 my music hits me so hard, makes me say, Mind to run and to hype, it feels good when you know you're down. A super 
can't touch this. Yeah, that's how we living, and you know you can't touch this. Look at my eyes, man. You can't touch this. You can't touch this is 30. One more. than words by extreme now 30 years old if it were a person it'd be working on a pot belly if it were a car uh, it would be undrivable if it were a career it would be ready to retire are we feeling old yet but what surprises me about time is how it eases our minds about certain things time softens the rough edges. It can sweeten certain things. Like there are a bunch of things I didn't used to like, but I like them now. I never liked broccoli as a kid. I like broccoli now. I never liked black and white movies, but I like them now. When it comes to music, I never liked Garth Brooks. Never liked Garth Brooks. Never figured that was a scene that I wanted to be part of. Over time, I've really changed my stance on Garth. Now, Clint played a big role in this. Played me a lot of those songs. We talked about the stories and all that. And now I really like the guy. I think he's an old soul that can't resist big theatrics. And that's a really interesting combination. It's just interesting to know that you've had all these different influences in your career. I'm the last of six kids. And my mom was a mom very young, so there really wasn't even a generation gap between the parents and the kids. So I got all this music from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, all kind of poured into your soul. So yeah, man, uh, I went to see Freddie Mercury when I was 17. No way. And uh, knew that's what I wanted to do, music. Knew that James Taylor was the guy that kept the house in peace, you know, yeah, kind right. of thing. And then when the first time I ever saw George Strait, I said, that's what I want to be. And now, I'm, you know, I'm proud of this. I'm in country music this many years later. I still want to be George Strait. That's man. so cool. <laughs> really? So are there any new acts that you think, oh, man, I want to be just like them? Yeah, I mean, man, are you still getting inspired? Oh, all the time. Yeah. And you get inspired by the music. That's right. that's what turns you on to it. And then the then watching what they do, like Gaga, you got inspired by the music. But then you watch her live, you go, holy cow, this woman can do it all, right? right. And then Sheeran, uh, just what he does with just him. She's a guitar and that yeah. looper. Yeah, that's it's unbelievable. crazy. Yeah. And then uh, country music, we were talking about uh, people like uh, Ashley McBride, singer-songwriter. <laughs> Who's also an artist. 
I bring up Garth Brooks because he has a new album coming out this year. It will be called Fun. Three singles have already been released. A massive stadium tour is in the works. Although a final release date has not been set. The album comes at an interesting time in the career of Garth Brooks. 2020 represents his 31st year as a recording artist. And big things tend to happen when an artist enters decade number three. Big things tend to happen in decade number three. You know, a glance back through music history tells us as much. This is when the great ones start mixing it up. They're beyond the reach of pop music. They're beyond the reach of the Billboard charts. And they're financially successful enough to do whatever they want to do. And interesting decisions are made. Interesting decisions are made in decade number three. For instance, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings were all 30 years into their careers when they formed the Highwaymen. Now, they never could have done that in any point earlier. Paul McCartney made what's probably the finest solo album of his career in 1997, 33 years after the first recordings with the Beatles. That album was called Flaming Pie, by the way. This is what the greats do. When Bob Dylan's career hit the 30-year mark, he began a career resurgence and hasn't really gone away since. His 1997 album, Time Out of Mind, was released 35 years into his career, won him a number of awards, took home Album of the Year at the Grammys. It's dark, it's murky, it's talky, it's insanely lonely. It doesn't sound like anything the guy had ever done before. Frank Sinatra began recording in the mid-40s. By the time the 70s rolled around, he was recording concept albums. One of them was called Watertown, and, and I really like it. Watertown by Frank Sinatra. Not a huge hit, but that's not my point. The point is that the geniuses start doing interesting things at this juncture. They may not be the biggest commercial successes of their careers, but they mix it up. They mix it up. Elton John did the Lion King soundtrack at about the 30-year mark. Not my favorite thing he'd ever done, but what a weird left turn looking back. A flamboyant guy like that recording for Disney? Kind of weird. 30 years into his career, Ray Charles was recording with everybody from Shaka Khan to Billy Joel. He was mixing it up. Springsteen recorded one of the most painful albums ever put on a disc. In the 30th year of his career, that album was called The Rising. The rules go out the window at the 30-year mark. To hell with the rules. This is where the great ones make their own rules. Tom Petty, in the third decade of his career, reformed the band that he had before the Heartbreakers. He started putting out blues music and boogie music. The band was called Mud Crutch. Fantastic stuff. Again, not something he could have done earlier. When he was still concerned with the charts and trying to make a living and you know, touring constantly, 
So what will Garth Brooks come up with in the third decade of his career? You know, it's already off to an interesting start. Now keep in mind that he's like the biggest recording artist in history. And he announced a dive bar tour. No dates or cities announced. Probably won't know anything until the last minute for obvious reasons. But he plans to visit like townie bars in like seven or eight different cities and play full shows there. A new single, in fact, is called Dive Bar. Turn that bottle up and drink it, crank that jukebox up and hang it, bartend for another round. Here's to our best, bad decision, situation, no conditions, oh, and memories we all need to drown. So fill your cup and raise it up, jump in and join the club and float this whiskey river reservoir. We're gonna spend the weekend in the deep end of a dive Could Garth Brooks do an acoustic album, a piano-based album, a Broadway show? Anything is on the table. Maybe he does a straight rock record. He's flirted with that for years. Maybe he goes on a co-headlining tour with Billy Joel or George Strait. He can do whatever he wants. It's decade number three. So who else is entering their third decade now? I have a list. Let's see. Uh, Blues Traveler, Jane's Addiction, Public Enemy, Mariah Carey, The Black Crows. Actually, I think they they just reformed. Uh, Let's see. Celine Dion. I don't really see her changing up her sound too much. Um, Ice Cube solo career turns 30 this year. Morrissey solo career turns 32. Uh, But he's always done whatever the fuck he's wanted. Uh, But here's my point. Keep an eye on bands. That started around that time. Because things could be more interesting for them than they have been in years. Decade number three, God bless it. She had a need to feel the thunder. To chase the lightning from the sky. To watch the storm with all its wonder. All right, friends, you know that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. It is up on Spotify. You can listen to it anytime, at work or in the shower or while you make love. It is there for you. All you have to do is search Stream Police. Every month, we add five more songs to the playlist. Uh, Let's see. The first song that we're going to add this time around, this is called Days Gone By by the Hawk, Ronnie Hawkins. One time, just one more time. I'd sure love to see those old friends of mine. I'd sure love to be with them just one more time. Talking about days gone by. I don't know, but I've been told those days we were walking there was solid gold. And Lord, we could carry such a heavy load. All right, that one's for you, Clint. I think you'll like it. Hell, let's let's listen to a little more of it. 
Just one thing, just one more thing. I'd sure love to hear those old guitars ring. I sure want to be amongst the ones who sing. Talking about days gone by. 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 All right. Next on the list. This is called Hell by James Brown. can't believe no rapper has sampled that yet it is begging to be sampled and um so is this for that matter it's lie to me by depeche mode Next, it's The Other Me by Paul McCartney. I know I was a crazy fool For treating you the way I did But something took a hold of me And I acted like a dustbin lid I didn't give a second thought might be I really wouldn't be surprised if you were trying to find another me Cause the other me would rather be the glad one The other me would rather play the fool I wanna be the kind of me that doesn't let you down And finally, God, this one's timely. 
This is Vietnam by Rage Against the Machine. it thank you so much we love you talk to you in february behave yourselves back to clint thank you very much andy always good to hear from you my friend and uh, man i had a blast when andy and i went to go see garth brooks in concert a few years ago that was uh that was a great night all the way through. Went to a nice uh, little steakhouse in Lexington, Kentucky, and then we went to Rupp Arena at uh, about 10:30 at night. It was a late show. Of he had done two shows that day. he was doing two shows that day. He had done the early one at like six or seven, and then the late show was starting at 10:30. And he does this performance that goes on for about three hours, starting at 10:30 at night in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. What a night! And then we made you know like a two-hour drive back. To Cincinnati from there, so pretty, uh, pr- pretty good time, man. That uh, definitely brings back some memories. All right, let's uh, let's keep going here. Let's talk about uh, a couple of movies that are uh, recently new, or relatively new, I should say. Recently new, I guess, is a little bit a uh, little bit redundant. All right, first off, I want to talk about Martin Scorsese's latest masterpiece. The Irishman, which is now on Netflix. Masterpiece, I think, is a little strong for this one. I'm saying that um, basically because Scorsese, I mean, pretty much everything he makes is going to be called a masterpiece. He, I mean, he, he doesn't miss that often. I guess he does sometimes. I mean, he did that movie with Adam Driver that nobody really liked very much. But other than that, I mean, he's pretty much, he's been on, you know, for most of his career, but he has had a few duds here and there. But The Irishman is one of those that I think is going to go down as uh, as a favorite for a lot of people. And there are a lot of reason for the, reasons for that. People have nagged on this movie for a few reasons, namely the length. And dude, if your complaint about a movie is about its length, and it's not related to its story, and it's not because, hey... You didn't need it to be that long. Like, it, it was just, it, it dragged a lot. Now, I get saying that a movie's too long if it just loses your interest. But sometimes, man, a four-hour movie is plenty. 
And it, you need four hours. I mean, look at films like The Godfather 2, which gets in there over three hours. Look at movies like Das Boot that gets in there, you know, over three hours. And a movie like Shoah that's 10 hours long. And there are tons of examples of these movies that are really insanely long, but very, very good. And The Irishman is one of those that, it, yeah, it clocks in at three and a half hours. But dude, what else are you doing with your night? Who cares? It's a movie. Sit down and enjoy it. Just be glad that it got dropped in your lap. You don't have to go to a theater to see it. It's on Netflix, man. Why do people not have patience to watch long movies? I just don't understand it, especially when you're in the hands of, look, you are watching a movie by one of the great directors in the history of film, and you're getting to see three of the all-time great actors ever working together for the first time, all three of them all together, with this great director, and you you get to sit there for four hours and watch it. I mean, to me, this was a gift. Three and a half hours, man. I, I would have watched, if it would have gone on for another hour, I would have kept watching it. But man, it's like people just... So people complaining about how long it is, that's a dumb complaint. That is a dumb, dumb complaint. It just is. So I, myself enjoyed every single minute of it. I, I did not find it dragging at all. Um, in fact, I thought it went by very quickly and I was sitting there and I kind of paused it at one point and it was like, oh shit, man, I'm already three hours into this thing. Like I, I want more to happen. I want to hear about more of adventures. So if you haven't seen The Irishman, what it is, is uh, it's a recounting of the life of a guy who worked as a hitman who claims to have worked as a hitman for uh, the mafia, but mainly for Jimmy Hoffa, who was the leader um, of the Teamsters Union kind of back in the 1960s, 70s, when it was a really big, when it was like the union. He was the face of that union, and he was a very um, well-known and kind of unpopular guy, depending on who you asked about it. And this movie kind of gets into what happened to Jimmy Hoffa, why did it happen to him? Why did he disappear? And also, though, it's really about the life of this guy played by Robert De Niro, who was kind of Hoffa's right hand man in the case of this story. Now, it's not all based in truth. And you can read a bunch of kind of refuting arguments about this movie and how it doesn't adhere to the truth. But I'm not th that interested in that. I don't think of this as a piece of journalism. This is uh, a movie that is based on one man's account of his life. So, of course, he's going to make it sound a little better than it is. And you've got a master storyteller at work here in Scorsese. So just just go with it, man. Just enjoy kind of what you're seeing here, because this, this is going to be the only time you're going to be able to see these kind of actors and this director all working together. And you're going to be able to watch it from the comfort of your home without having to pay any extra money than you already do for Netflix. So but here's the thing about The Irishman. I'm not going to sit here and say that it was the greatest movie I've ever seen or that it was, you know, Scorsese's best work because it wasn't either of those things. Certainly was not Scorsese's best work. I wouldn't even put it in the top 10 of his best movies, but he's one of those directors that's got a million great movies. I mean, off the top of my head, I think of Raging Bull as his absolute best movies. I think of Raging Bull. I think of Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Casino. Um, I think of Bringing Out the Dead. I think of The King of Comedy. I think of The Last Waltz. Gangs of New York was a killer movie. Scorsese's got a million great movies over the course of his career. Uh, so I don't know where The Irishman ranks up there. Maybe it's in the top ten. I don't know. But it's certainly not in the top five of his movies for me. So 
But here's what I think about The Irishman. I think your mileage with this movie will completely depend upon how much you like these actors, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Al Pacino, because those are the three guys that are basically in every single... One of those three is in every single frame of this movie that's three and a half hours long, all right? So it's going to depend on how much you like those guys. And it's going to depend on how much you like Scorsese's style of doing a gangster movie because this movie carries itself a lot like Goodfellas and Casino did. It's very heavy with voiceover narration, and it has lots of quick scenes and quick cuts, which are classics, uh, you know, kind of indicators of Scorsese's style, and it is very violent as well. So if those things don't get you going, then you're probably not going to really enjoy this movie. I told Beth, uh, my wife, Beth, by the way, who I bring up from time to time here on the show, I told her that it was basically De Niro and Scorsese getting together and jerking off for four hours. And that's exactly what I was hoping to see. That's what I wanted. I wanted to watch a movie where it's just Scorsese and De Niro just jerking off for four hours. That's pretty much all I wanted to see. And that's what the the Irishman is. It's two guys who know that they're awesome at doing this kind of movie, and they're doing it. It's the greatest hits of of, uh, all the things that... But it does take the gangster genre in kind of a new place, and I'll get to that in a minute. But I knew that she would hate this movie. So I knew that. So I think it all depends on how much you enjoy this type of film. So she didn't watch it with me. And I know that she would have hated every minute of this movie because she just does not like gangster movies anyway. She doesn't like tough guy movies. And she doesn't really like any of those actors. She's not big into De Niro. She's not, she doesn't like Pacino like at all. I know. I don't understand how. I wish I would have known these things before I married her. But doesn't like Al Pacino. Thinks he's you know, not that great of an actor. So, I mean, that's first off, that's horse shit. So I'm not going to get into that right now. But anyway, that's another show. But it's going to depend on how much you like those guys. If you don't think Joe Pesci and Scorsese and De Niro and Pacino are that all that great, then you're not going to probably like The Irishman. You're going to go into it being like, this is stupid. Why am I watching this? It's three and a half hours long. If you go into it thinking that the length is a bad thing, then don't watch it. All right. Because it is very long. And if that if you're thinking about that already going into it, then you're not going to enjoy it. So you're already you're already checked out. But if you have an open mind about this, if you like if you love gangster movies, I should say, because you got to love them, I think, to really like this movie. You are going to find something to love in this movie because it just crank. It just goes along. It has a great soundtrack. It looks good. Except for the de-aging, which was a little weird all the way across the board. It just looks weird. There's just something about it that just looks inhuman. The uh, they, they made De Niro's eyes blue, and that really threw me through the entire movie. So it was just kind of strange. Um, but the de-aging thing didn't really bug me that bad or take me out of the movie except for one obvious scene. There was one scene where Robert De Niro's character takes his daughter with him down to the local like grocery store and he beats the hell out of the guy who runs the grocery store because of the way that he treated his daughter when she was shopping in there earlier in the day. So now in that scene, De Niro's movements and kind of the way he carries his body, because in that scene, he has to throw the guy out of the building. um, And then he has to throw him, he throws him down on the ground and then he stomps on him. He kicks him in the ribs a few times. And when he's doing that, he looks like a guy who is 70 years old kicking somebody. 
This, but in the movie, he's supposed to be this brawny, tough guy who's in his late 20s or early 30s, uh, you know, who has served in the military and all this stuff. So very fit guy who's pretty young still and in his prime. Uh, but he did not look like that. He looked like an old ass guy stomping on somebody just from the way he, he did it. So I would have probably used a younger actor just for that scene because we had to see his entire body or I would have used closer shots because the way they shot it, it was it was nicely done. It was the way that I think that Scorsese would have shot it if it was Goodfellas or whatever or if De Niro was young. But when you're dealing with an actor who is old and you're trying to make him look young, you can't show him walking around like he's a 70-year-old dude, which he does in that scene. So that one really kind of, that one took me out of it a little bit. That was the only time, though, where I was really taken out of the film, and I remembered that I was watching an old guy who's supposed to be playing a young guy. I do, uh, talking about the de-aging stuff, I do find it ironic that Robert De Niro's own career may not have ever taken off if this type of technology had existed in 1974 when he played the young version of Marlon Brando's character in The Godfather Part Two, because I have to imagine in 1974, if de-aging existed, Francis Ford Coppola would have just de-aged Brando and would have made him young, and Brando could have played the part in The Godfather Two. Why not? I mean, Brando still had plenty of fire in his belly at that point. Uh, so, I mean, I think they would have done it. So then you would have never seen a young Robert De Niro. That was the performance that put him on the map. And won him an Oscar right at the beginning of his career. So I kind of wonder what young actor out there is missing his big shot because of this technology now becoming popular and older actors being able to just play younger versions of themselves. I don't think it's a big problem. Like, it's not going to come up a lot. There's not a lot of situations where you would need an actor to play a younger version of a character. But uh, it is funny because De Niro's career did start with him playing the young version of a character played by a legendary actor. And in this case, he was able to just play the young version of himself throughout the movie because they use de-aging technology. There was another criticism of this film uh, aimed at the fact that Anna Paquin plays Robert De Niro's daughter, but that she only has like two lines in the entire film. Uh, on this, I had absolutely no problem with it at all because the part that she's playing is all about silence and all about quiet judgment. I mean, this woman is supposed to be the offspring of this menacing tough guy, and she's been afraid of him for her entire life, ever since she was a kid and she saw him stomp on this grocer outside of his grocery store because he was not that nice to her. So that fear that she's had in him and that kind of I don't know if it's like apathy or if it's pity or if it's just she looks down on him or what it is. But all of that is apparent in the looks that she gives him throughout the entire film. And there are many scenes where she just looks at him and she says so much with those looks that she doesn't need to say anything. Honestly, I think that Paquin does brilliant work here without saying much. And Scorsese needed to cast a great actor here because it's hard to do a role like that and have it carry weight without using very many words. If she had been verbalizing the things that she's obviously saying with her eyes the entire film, I think that Anna Paquin's character would have lost a lot of her power and probably would have turned into someone that the audience just finds annoying rather than someone that they sympathize with. 
because she would have essentially just been nagging this guy that we've come to like and we've been charmed by in the course of almost four hours. And that's all she would have been doing. She would have been nagging him every time we see her and just been like, oh, here comes the nag again. Get her out of here. But instead, she's this powerful kind of judge, the only person who really judges him, who really looks down upon him and who is able to do so with impunity because, I mean, what's he going to say? It's his daughter. What's he going to do to her? So it's just uh, I, I think that it was I think it was perfect I, as it was written. I think that that's exactly this the part that it needed to be. But because she's silent until the big moment where she does finally speak up, it gives her words a ton of weight and it reveals so much about the life that this guy missed out on at home when he was taking care of business on the road. And that to me was the ultimate brilliance of the Irishman. That was where it became a great movie instead of just a good movie that was fun to watch. It became a great movie in the fact that it demystified the story of the gangster, which has been a story that's been mystified for generations in Hollywood. Uh, now, but I don't. But this isn't the first movie to do that. I mean, even the old gangster movies, even the movies like Little Caesar and like White Heat and those kind of movies, they always kind of ended tragically, and they didn't really end in some like great triumph for the even Tony Montana. I mean, you know what I mean? Like he had his great big victories, but then he ends up just a, a you know a pile of bones like everybody else. So, but. I think Casino, Scorsese's own movie from the 1990s, had already demystified the gangster genre a lot uh, in the same ways. I mean, you think about the way that Casino begins and ends, and it's all told with voiceover narration by the characters of Joe Pesci and the character of Rob De Niro and the character of Sharon Stone. But De Niro especially, he ends up an old man, not necessarily busted, broken down, but he's an old man, uh, and he is you know, just wearing these thick glasses, betting on horse races and all this stuff, you know, kind of a small timer at this point in a city that he doesn't even know anymore that he kind of helped build from the ground up in Las Vegas. So I think that movie did demystify a lot of the gangster uh, genre because we saw what happened to Joe Pesci's character, who was a tough guy, a defiant guy all the way to the end. And, you know, you saw what it got him, which was just an absolutely brutal way to go out still to this day I think one of the most brutal death scenes ever done in a movie but the Irishman did drive it home even further because you're left with this man in the end who is essentially completely alone in every way once we get to the final heartbreaking shot of the film you know and I didn't want it to end when I got to that ending shot I was like oh this is going to be the last shot just by the way he's hanging on it and I didn't want it to end. I would have watched another three hours. I thought it was great. Uh, I really enjoyed sitting down with the Irishman. It was a fun night of watching a movie. And, uh, you know, I didn't mention him enough here when I'm, I was reviewing it, but Joe Pesci is just incredible in this movie. The quiet power that he brings to every scene is something that only the greatest actors can channel, and Pesci is certainly one of them. I'd love to see him win another Oscar for Best Supporting Actor here because I just could not take my eyes off of him every single time he was on the frame. He made me believe every single word he said. He won his Oscar for his role in Goodfellas where he was kind of like the alpha, ultimate, tough guy, loudmouth jerk-off, right? Who He would kill anybody at any moment who said the wrong thing to him at any time. He didn't care. He was like the ultimate tough guy, doesn't give a shit, and you know lives fast and dies hard kind of guy. And he won an Oscar for that. In this movie, he's like the total opposite. He, in this movie, is kind of the clear-headed, 
the king, when everyone else is kind of a pawn moving around and he's directing them, he's the leader that everyone goes back to and asks advice for or asks advice from. And uh, seeing Pesci in that role was really cool because he had always kind of played the other guy. And De Niro had kind of been usually the guy who people went to for advice. But it was really cool to see Pesci play that part. And I thought he just nailed it. I think it was definitely an Oscar worthy performance, especially from him and Pacino was great as well I mean it was typical Pacino he's uh, always had a tendency to overact he does it a little bit here his accent is a little weird but I I mean I guess it was the right accent um, you know for Jimmy Hoffa because he's playing a real guy so you know he a method guy like that he's got to really get into the part but uh, it was it's just it's thrilling to see these guys in a scene together I mean to get to see Al Pacino and Joe Pesci talking to one another in a scene is thrilling because we'd never seen that before. And getting to see De Niro and Pesci again back together with Martin Scorsese just brings back memories of movies like Raging Bull and Goodfellas and Casino. And those are three of my absolute all-time favorite movies that have ever been made. So it was it was great for me. I think if you're a big-time fan of those that director and those actors, you have to watch The Irishman. It is a must-see for you. For everybody else, again, your mileage is going to vary. But if you like gangster movies, it's a really fresh take on the gangster movie and a way to end kind of this odyssey of gangster movies that Scorsese has been doing throughout his entire career and ends it in such a depressing way, really. So The Irishman is streaming right now on Netflix. Spend some time with it, man. You will not regret it. Can you believe this weather, Frank? Huh? It's 85 degrees outside. Perfect. Hey, Tony Jack. Jimmy. People freezing to death in New York. And look at us. Why we don't live here all year round is what I want to know. Beautiful. It's summer. What? It's summer. People aren't freezing to death in New York. It's summer. In my mind, it's always eight degrees in New York. I'm making a point. Making a point? Making a point dressing like that? Is that you dress for a meeting? And this is how you dress in Florida? In a suit? For a meeting? Anywhere. Florida, Timbuktu, I just in a suit. For a meeting. And you're late. What? You're late. And it was traffic. Yeah, it's traffic. <laughs> Wasn't it traffic? You yeah, give me it traffic. It was traffic. What do, you, what, what do you want from us? It was bumper to bumper. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, it's bad, you know. Traffic. I never waited for anyone who was late more than 10 minutes in my life. I'd say 15, 15's right. No, 10. I don't think so. 10's not enough, you have to take traffic into account. That's, that's what I'm doing, I'm, I'm taking traffic into account. That's why it's 10. I still say 15. No, 10. Fine, we, we disagree on that. Well, how oh. about 12 and a half minutes? There we go, there 12 and a half. In the middle, right it's in the middle, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, more than 10 is saying something. He's saying something to me. And speaking of having fun watching a movie, I wanted to talk about another one for a minute that uh, I know it's been out for a little while, but I haven't had a chance to review. That is the movie Knives Out, which uh, is in theaters right now, still ending its theatrical run. But anyway, I, I didn't get to talk about it in the last episode since we did our end of decade review. So I wanted to do that while it's still in theaters. 
So Knives Out, if you don't know anything about this, this is a big murder mystery uh, that was written and directed by Ryan Johnson, the guy who did Star Wars, The Last Jedi, the movie that, uh, you know, made all kinds of white cisgender uh, Star Wars fans' heads explode when it came out because of all the diversity he kind of injected into the world of Star Wars and uh, you know, new characters that he introduced. And I really liked what Ryan Johnson did for Star Wars. I think he challenged Star Wars fans, and I think he brought something new to the table, which, you know, J.J. Abrams did not necessarily do when he directed uh, The Force Awakens. So uh, I respect Ryan Johnson for what he did when he got a chance to direct a Star Wars movie, and I hope he doesn't regret it at all, and I hope that he absolutely never does. But he ends up going, you know, doing kind of a full 180 here with this and doing a murder mystery inspired kind of by the likes of, uh, you know, Agatha Christie. So this was uh, this was pretty fun. It's just uh, it's a big whodunit. And actually, in the story, you you get to see whodunit very early on. So it's kind of an interesting way they do this. But there are still plenty of twists that happen all throughout the story. So but this one was just a blast to sit through. And I got to say, I think it's a must see for anyone who likes those big whodunit ensemble cast movies like Murder on the Orient Express, whether it's the Lumet version or the Kenneth Branagh version um, or Clue. If you like the movie Clue, I think you need to see this because this does have some Clue in it uh, because uh, Knives Out is pretty lighthearted, really. It's very funny in a lot of places. Um, but, I mean, it's a dream cast when you have people like Daniel Craig, Jamie Lee Curtis, Christopher Plummer, Tony Collette, Chris Evans all working together. And then to throw, uh, you know, kind of a cherry on top, you get a star-making performance from Ana de Armas, who plays the lead part in the movie, and it just makes the whole thing even better. Uh, I loved watching her. I thought she was fantastic in this. Cannot wait to see kind of what she does next. She was already really good in Blade Runner 2049. She played the uh, kind of hologram, I don't know, girlfriend, I guess, of Ryan Gosling's character in that, and she was very good there. Uh, but she here gets to do a lot more, and she shows that she's really funny too. And uh, I, I loved, I liked her character a lot. I just thought her character was really charming and cool, and she was somebody that I was really rooting for from start to finish. I also really liked the costuming and the production design overall in Knives Out. I thought the sets looked really good. I thought the whole thing looked and felt kind of like if Wes Anderson decided to make a murder mystery. That's what I think he, this is what I think would happen is Knives Out because it had a little bit of that Royal Tenenbaums kind of feeling to it. The characters are all kind of kooky in different ways and, you know, none of them really feel all that realistic, but it's all right because they all exist in this world together. So they all make sense by just kind of all being weird. So it's like, this must be just a weird world and maybe not my actual world. And Ana de Armas's character is the anchor of the whole thing who keeps things kind of grounded in reality because she is definitely the most normal of all of them. Uh, but Daniel Craig, man, really fun to watch him play this like Southern detective. I mean, of all the actors you could have cast to play a Southern, uh, you know, Southern drawl speaking detective, would you have picked Daniel Craig? I don't think I would have, but it's fun to see him play this part again. I don't know how much, I don't know how good that accent is that he does, but I don't care because he's a great actor and he's just fun to watch and he's just charming as hell. He's just great at being charming. And it was awesome to see him having some fun in a movie again, because I feel like I haven't seen him have fun in a movie since layer cake. And that was like in 2004, 
he's just his whole career he has starred in all these like pitch black grim movies including his bond movies which are by far the least fun of all the bond movies that have ever been made i mean he's his version of bond is so dark and grim and there's just so few laughs to be had all through it and it's really kind of a shame because daniel craig is really good at being funny and it's just cool to see him kind of use his great sense of humor again that's exactly what he does all throughout knives out and he's just um He's fantastic in this role, uh, and apparently they're going to be making a sequel with Daniel Craig's character that he's going to be solving another mystery because he's one of these gentleman detective guys. So I'll go see that, man. I, I like this character, and I like Daniel Craig playing it. I think it's a very good role for him. Um, I, I need to see Logan Lucky, too. This reminds me because I think he was having a good time in that one. But Daniel Craig just has not gotten to have enough fun in movies in the past few years. He's kind of been typecast in these dark films with you know, David Fincher and Sam Mendes. So he needs to get out and have some more fun, and I'm glad that Ryan Johnson gave him a chance to do that. But Knives Out, I really loved it. I thought it was very fun. I thought the the twists were really good. Uh, I thought uh, all the performances were very strong. It looked like everyone had fun making this movie. Uh, And that's, you know, sometimes that's all you can ask for. It's just fun to watch a big ensemble of actors get together and have fun acting. Uh, and not taking themselves too seriously at all. And Ana de Armas, very good in this movie. Cannot wait to see what she's going to do next. So Knives Out right now is ending its theatrical run. It'll be streaming soon and out on Blu-ray and everything else. So I, I urge you to check it out if you like murder mysteries and if you like whodunits. Give it a watch. It's really it's a funny and fun one. Definitely worth your time. Uh, good kind of date night movie as well because it's not too serious and it's uh, just a fun watch. There's something for everybody in that one. Mr. Blanc, I know who you are. I read your profile in The New Yorker. I found it delightful. I just buried my 85-year-old father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I'm here at the behest of a client. Who? I cannot say, but let me assure you this. My presence will be ornamental. You will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer of the truth. Okay, let's move on to the best thing that I watched this month. This is what where I always tell you uh, of all the things I watched this month, this movie was the absolute best. And for this month, um, I am going to give you a movie from 2014, a documentary called The Look of silence that left me on my ass. This was directed by Joshua Oppenheimer, who did uh, The Act of Killing, which, if you remember, was my second favorite movie of the 2010s. And I finally got around to seeing The Look of Silence, which was kind of a companion film to that. It wasn't a sequel necessarily, but it kind of focuses on the same subject matter as The Act of Killing. And I got to tell you, it was, I mean, really, it was just as good as the act of killing it was probably even more emotional than that movie but what this film is about so if i can give you like a nutshell version of it it's a pretty complex movie but the look of silence is set in indonesia and it's a documentary again it's set in indonesia which is a country that has a troubled relationship with its own past okay and in the 1960s the military took over Indonesia as like a military coup happened. And when they were running the country, they used that chance to murder 
more than a half a million people. That's the estimate that's been made. 500,000 people murdered by the government of their own country. And what it was, was it was all under the guise of, well, these people are communists. And no, there was no trial or anything. It was anyone who was suspected or anyone who they said was a communist. You know, you know how like in America during McCarthyism, people got blacklisted? Well, in Indonesia in the 1960s, when the military took over, they didn't blacklist people. They cut their heads off and did horrible things to them um, and desecrated their corpses and everything else. Just killed them. People that they just didn't like. It wasn't people that actually were communists. They just killed people. And in that country since then, a lot of the people who were in power, who did the killings, are still in power now and are revered as heroes. So if you can imagine, this is a place where families of victims who know their family member was not guilty of anything other than maybe being a liberal, that's it. But sometimes not even that. Um, they have to go to school with the kids of people who, or they have to go to school with teachers who were around when the killings happened and were taking part in the killings and they have to vote for people or against people who, you know, killed their own grandfather or whatever. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's, there's so much just emotion under the surface there that is unexplored and so much grief that has never been explored in that country. So the act of killing was kind of about that, but the look of silence goes into it as well. And what happens in the look of silence is this guy named Adi, who his, his, all of his identity and everything is kept secret in the movie because, you know, they, he didn't want to get killed obviously, but he's an eye doctor. He's an Indonesian eye doctor. And his own brother, older brother, was killed as one of the communists. He was just murdered one day. And Oppenheimer has on camera a couple of the different people who killed him, uh, admitting to it on camera and describing in great detail and in gleeful detail, being very proud of it, how they killed him, how they cut his intestines out and made them fall onto the ground, how they cut his genitals, how they, uh, you know, just different things they did to him, how they, you know, sliced his head off and how the blood, you know, filled the water and everything else. Gruesome details. He's got them on camera saying these things. And so Adi goes to them under the guise of he's going to check their eyes because they're all old guys now. He's going to check their eyes and he's going to give them a prescription for glasses, which is what he actually does. But while he's kind of doing the prescription, he's asking them hard questions about the, the killings. And he reveals to them that he, his brother was one of the people killed and he confronts them on camera. And so it's just intense. And so, I mean, th there are some just heartbreaking, unbelievable like agonizing moments in this movie where you just want somebody to hug Adi, but Adi is a tough motherfucker and he does not want your hug or care. All right. He just wants these guys to own up to what they did. And all he wants is an apology and no one will give it to him because they don't think they did anything wrong still after all this time. So it's just an amazing, intense experience that, you know, it took a real brave filmmaker to make this movie, and Joshua Oppenheimer is that. He is absolutely one of the best documentary filmmakers that we have. Uh, and this movie was uh, produced by uh, Werner Herzog 
and Errol Morris, who are two of the absolute best documentary filmmakers of all time, two of my very favorites. So those guys clearly saw something of value in this movie and they funded it. And Oppenheimer just does another great film. So the look of silence, that was the best thing I watched this month. Uh, and it wasn't even close. It was it's it's an incredible movie. It's an absolutely essential documentary to check out. Uh, just if you have any interest in human rights, human rights violations, stuff like that, give the look of silence a watch. It's intense. I mean, basically, that movie is like imagine families of Holocaust survivors confronting Jews on hidden camera and telling them who they are. And, uh, the you know, the, the former Nazi not being able to do anything about it, but just sit there and be an old person who can only defend everything that they did because they still think it was right. Because if they admit that it wasn't right, then they're admitting that they're murderers and all of their, uh, you know, their mask slips away completely. So just... Uh, just an intense, intense movie. The Look of Silence. Could not recommend that one anymore. All right, some movies now streaming for you on Netflix and Amazon. I always like to tell you about something funny and something serious streaming right now on Netflix and on Amazon Prime for you. And Netflix had a good haul this month. A lot of good stuff debuting this month on Netflix. For something funny, I'm going to give you something that's kind of funny but also kind of serious. That would be Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, Quentin Tarantino's epic two-part story uh, starring Uma Thurman as the mysterious bride. And she goes on her long revenge quest to kill the people who butchered the guests and tried to butcher herself at her own wedding, finishing at the top with the leader of their gang, a guy named Bill, played by the late David Carradine. So uh, I just really, uh, the Kill Bill movies are some of my absolute favorites by Tarantino. They are kind of uh, what I would point to as everything that he you know, everything that's kind of great about him as a filmmaker, which is just, it's just so brash, so ballsy. Um, and he'll just try anything and do anything. And the violence is so over the top and so inspired. And the fight scenes are breathtaking. And the characters are just so cool. The dialogue's great. The music is fantastic. Uh, and the look of the movie is just awesome. And it's full of references to other movies. And the Kill Bill movies are just, they're great. They're just a dream for nerds for movies i think so check out kill bill volume one and two streaming right now on netflix i actually like the second one better but the first one is really cool and really interesting and i think the first one's more exciting but i think the second one is the better movie from start to finish uma thurman i mean she's a national treasure she's uh she's great in these movies I'd like to see her work with Tarantino again, actually. And something serious for you on Netflix, Inception, Christopher Nolan's epic sci-fi uh, odyssey where it was people going into other people's dreams, invading them and stealing their ideas and everything else. Just a crazy concept that only Christopher Nolan could really pull off on this scale. This is such an ambitious movie, and it's just done so well. I'll never forget seeing Inception in theaters. Absolutely one of the best theatrical experiences of my life because the music is powerhouse. Um, and the visuals are just lush, man. So watch it on Netflix because it'll be in high def and it'll look the way that it should look. You should definitely only watch Inception in high def. Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know if the performances and characters are all that great. They're fine. Uh, but this is a movie that's all about the visuals and all about the ride, man. And it is one hell of a ride. It's a really cool heist movie. Cool uh, spin on the heist movie. 
on Amazon for you, streaming right now on Amazon Video, something for you, uh, something funny for you, 1985's The Goonies. Come on. It's a classic. You probably got it on VHS or you probably wore out your VHS copy. So now check it out in high definition uh, right now on Amazon. What more do I need to say about The Goonies? Just a fun old teen adventure. If you like Stranger Things, Stranger Things is basically The Goonies, the TV series. So... If, you, uh, if you've never seen it and you like Stranger Things, you should watch The Goonies for sure. It's on Amazon right now. You will have fun with this movie. And uh, something serious for you on Amazon Prime, Midsummer from 2019. I told you, this movie fucked me up. It it shook me up. I, I had nightmares uh, the night that I saw it. I, that does not happen to me. I couldn't sleep. Uh, scared the shit out of me. And Ari Aster is the king of horror for this generation, unquestionably. It's the guy who did Hereditary, which I had it listed in my top 10 movies of the 2010s. Um, and Midsummer is a worthy successor to Hereditary. It is even more grim. Uh, it's even more lush. And I got to tell you, the ending to Midsummer is, god damn, maybe it might be the grimmest ending. It's got to be one of the grimmest endings ever in cinema history. It's, it's right up there, seriously. It really disturbed me badly. Uh, and it's just kind of an intense character exploration and a look at bad relationships in 2019. <laughs> so what can go wrong when you travel somewhere that you're not 100% sure about? So check out Midsummer if you've got a strong stomach and if you like horror, because it is scary, my friend, and it is streaming right now on Amazon Prime Video. God, beautiful movie, though. Gorgeous movie. All takes place during the, under the light of the sun. Uh, but it is scary as hell and very gory and very disturbing. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Thanks for hanging out with me, my friend. And uh, I want to thank Andy Sedlak again for gracing us with his presence and giving us some more recommendations of something to listen to. You can find our show on Spotify now. If you're on there searching for the Stream Police playlist, search Stream Police and you'll see the podcast and the playlist. Uh, both of them there are for you for your uh, listening enjoyment so uh, again i'm clint davis you can reach me on uh, email at the clint davis at gmail.com t-h-e clint davis at gmail.com follow me on instagram at mr clint davis if you want to see what i'm watching i'll talk to you next month my friend until then stream on A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.